This is Swordplay. Alex, biblical scholar Eden Dershowitz is rewriting the Bible, specifically Leviticus, in order to present homosexuality as permitted by God. You going to get a copy of this new Bible translation? Yeah, Nick. You know, I hear he's also including a few apocryphal books like First and Second Opinions. Whoa. But for me, I might just stick with my RJV. It's the only authorized version. RJV? Don't you mean the KJV? No, no, no. RJV. Rick James Version. There it is. All right. (laughs) This is Swordplay. We are your hosts. I am Nick Perez, preaching minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California. And I'm Alex Flood. I'm an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota. On this episode of Swordplay, the book of Obadiah. Hey, fun fact, Alex, Obadiah is actually the shortest book of the Old Testament with just 21 verses in it. Wow. So hopefully the podcast will be less than an hour today. I don't know. We took a lot of notes, so I know. (laughs) (laughs) Might have to do two parts. (laughs) Seems like the shorter they are, the more there is to unpack. Yeah, Yeah, they're just dense. Well, should we start out with the lightning round? Naturally. Excellent. All right, lightning round, and uh, Nick, I'll ask the first question, you go, and then we'll see what we can do in uh, about a minute's time. Here we go. Are you ready? Ready when you are. On your marks, get set. Who wrote the book of Obadiah? Well, obviously Obadiah. His name means servant of Yahweh, and depending on when you date this, we may only know his name and little else, unless it's the Obadiah from Elijah's day, and then we know he was over Ahab's house, responsible for the royal estate. Where was Edom located, Alex? Edom was located southeast and southwest of the Dead Sea. The exact boundaries, uh, is a, they're a little ambiguous because they're somewhat of a nomadic people. Nick, to whom was the letter of Obadiah written? To the Edomites. Uh, they were descendants of Esau, twin brother of Jacob. And so, therefore, they are actually blood relatives of Israel. Hey, Alex, what's Teman? Teman is actually a city of Edom. It's sometimes mentioned alongside Basra, which was Edom's capital. So, Teman seems to be known for its wise men, its mighty men, possibly located in the northern region of Edom. Nick, why was this book written? Edom had actually done some violence to Israel during an attack from another nation, probably Babylon. So, God, through Obadiah, prophesies unrelenting destruction for Edom. Ba-ba! End of lightning round. That's right. That might have been our best lightning round yet. Ooh, we flew. <clears throat> That's a quick one. Well, now that we've got that out of the way, now to one of the tougher questions, Nick. When was this book written? And perhaps this could be the question of the day. Um, question of the day. You know, the dates actually vary on this. It depends on who you ask. Um... Some say that the book of Obadiah was written during the reign of Jehoram. Uh, That would have been around 855 to 840 B.C. And you can actually read more about it in 2 Kings chapter 8. There are others who say that this book was written during Jeremiah's ministry. And so this bumps the date forward to uh, somewhere between 627 and 586. Uh, Most people believe the prophecy was spoken following an episode of plundering and destruction of Jerusalem, and the Edomites took part in that. And again, it depends on who you ask, that could have happened four to six times. Um, Once during the reign of Jehoram, once during the reign of Amaziah in 
806 to 776 BC. Could have happened during the reign of Ahaz, 735 to 716 BC. And then during the reign of Zedekiah, 597 to 586 BC. Others will add to this list, like Absalom's revolt. Uh, They may split the invasions of Nebuchadnezzar into two, separated by different precipitating events. But here's where I land. I like the early date for this. I like um, probably during Jehoram's day. Obadiah probably was a contemporary with Elijah. And for the early date, there's actually a a Bible verse which um, seems to indicate that it was... Uh, written back in the 9th century B.C., because God says through Jeremiah in Jeremiah 49.13, he says, I have sworn by myself, past tense, I have sworn by myself that Basra, and that's just a figurative, poetic way of talking about Edom, um, that Edom would become a desolate wasteland under a curse, a horror, a haunt, all this stuff. So, uh, when would God have sworn that? Well, some point to Obadiah as being when he did that, uh, years, centuries before Jeremiah uttered his prophecy. So uh, that's a bit about the the dating of this book. Man, four to six different plunderings. These guys really did not like each other at all. Yeah, no kidding. Um, you know, Alex, as we dig into the actual text of the book, um, right there in verse 1, uh, it talks about, I believe your translation says, an envoy. Uh, my English standard says a messenger has been sent among the nations. Uh, the old King James says an ambassador. Um, who is this envoy, and how would they convince the nations to rise in battle against Edom? Well, that's a good question, Nick. Um, I'm wondering if this is actually a spiritual envoy, So the story that I have in mind is from 1 Kings 22, verses 20 through 23. Now, this is a a different occasion. This doesn't have to do with Edom, but it's a moment in which you see that the prophet Micaiah gets a vision where he's in the divine council, and he's hearing this deliberation go on, and the deliberation is, how are we going to um, kill King Ahab? So one of the spirits comes forward and says, send me, I'll be a lying spirit in the mouth of his prophets, and I'll convince him that he should go to war, and then he'll die in war, in battle. And God says, that's a good idea, go do it, and you'll succeed. And he does. So the thought here, perhaps, then, is that all of these other nations, they have their um, so-called seers and prophets. Perhaps God is going to send a spirit to all of them, so that those prophets will utter to their kings, um, now is a good time to go take down Edom. So uh, perhaps this envoy is a deceiving spirit or, or several deceiving spirits, and this is how Edom's going to be destroyed. The nations are going to be conjured up against her in this fashion. Uh, that's my thought. What do you think, Nick? Uh, that makes sense. Um, I like the pulling in of first kings chapter 22 there as well um, that whole interesting scene um, so all right god um he's going to do something here in verse two to edom it says uh, i will make some translations say i have made uh, but i will make you small among the nations you shall be utterly despised um well alex how will god make edom small among the nations um, that's another good question. I mean, 
here's what the uh, Septuagint and the Dead Sea Scrolls both say. They both say the past tense uh, have made you small. So this could be an indication that the uh, task for the spiritual envoy, putting the lying spirit in the mouths of the other nation's prophets, uh, it was maybe being accomplished or already was accomplished. So it's a picture of the other nation's prophets saying, look, Edom is small. She's weak. She's vulnerable. We hate her. Let's take her. Um, I mean, point being, you have God in control of this. Job 12.23 talks about the Lord raising up nations, the Lord bringing down nations. It's the Lord in charge of this. So however God accomplished this uh, task of making Edom actually small or just look small and weak in the eyes of the other nations that he's raising up against him. Either way, it's God who's doing it. He's in charge. Nick, what do you think? Yeah, um, my, my English standard has a footnote that has the past tense in there. King James, American standard, they have the past tense. I'll just approach it. If, if it is a future thing, and in other words, if it's uh, predictive of something that is yet to happen, um, then... Um, the way this reads, it's actually going to be the action of God's judgment that's going to humiliate and therefore make small uh, the proud, arrogant nation of Edom. And so the figure would be that of humiliation. And uh, literally, though, if we want to take this track as well, uh, Obadiah is not the only prophet to predict gloom and doom and destruction. We've already seen Jeremiah, Ezekiel does it as well. And in fact, in Ezekiel chapter 35, verse 8, he says, I will fill its mountains with the slain. And so it could be a literal depopulation of the nation uh, in which it's minimized. It's actually literally made smaller just by virtue of the fact that so many of its people have been killed. Sure. Um, but so that, I guess, different ways of a couple different ways we could look at it there. Absolutely. And um, Nick, this reminds me the audience should go back and read Obadiah uh, once, twice, maybe three times, and right. then come back and join us for this conversation because uh, we're assuming that the audience knows what we're talking about. We're just going to make reference to the verse number, but we're not actually going to read the book. So go ahead and read Obadiah, push pause on the podcast, and come back if you haven't done that yet. That's absolutely right. Um, and so we do press forward here to verse 4. Um, though you soar like an eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down. Kind of a key verse here in Obadiah. What is meant here, Alex, by an eagle building its nest among the stars? This is one of those uh, memorable verses. Usually this is one of the Obadiah verses that people will memorize as part of their uh, scripture memorization. This is a beautiful passage. It's poetic, but it's also it's powerful. It's a little scary. And at the very least, we have a picture given here to explain Edom's pride and arrogance. But there's something else that might be going on here, so I'm going to throw something out for consideration. So the eagle just happened to be one of the symbols that represented the zodiac constellation Scorpio. That may sound weird because Scorpio is supposed to be the shape of a scorpion, right? Mm, yeah. But this is just how how it was. Scorpio had several symbols that represented that zodiac constellation. And a lot of people knew about the stars and they had their ideas of the shapes and the way they connect and all that stuff and the seasons that they correspond with. Um, there may even be some connection here to the uh, the wise men of Edom, and um, how God is going to put them to shame. 
what did these wise men do? Ancient wise men usually were uh, part of the uh, knowledgeable people who could look up at the sky and, and tell you the signs and the, and the workings of the gods and what's going to happen. So maybe this is what Obadiah has in mind. Maybe we have here some sort of uh, polemic going on. Think about this, Nick. Um, in the ancient Near East, it's very common for stars to be thought of as gods or perhaps controlled by the gods. Um, this is not unfamiliar to scripture. Uh, Book of Revelation chapter 120 says that uh, the seven stars in the hands of Jesus are the seven angels of the seven churches. So uh, using stars as a symbol to represent supernatural beings, uh, not unfamiliar to the Bible, but here's where the minds of the Edomites might be. They might be thinking stars are gods, controlled by the gods. So what am I saying? Okay, Edom may have thought that they had attained to some level of deity, to some level of godhood through their own power, through their own wisdom. They may have thought that they were uh, the the captains of their own ship, that they were beyond the uh, the will and power of the gods, that they themselves had sat them, set themselves in the midst of the stars, which would be in the midst of the gods. So God says from there, from that position that they think they're in, he's going to bring them down, and they will fall. And this is pretty interesting, because fallen stars uh, can conjure up all kinds of things in the reader's mind, uh, especially the idea of, you know, the expulsion of rebellious angels from heaven, like Satan, or even the angels who left their proper abode that we read about in Jude, uh, verse 6, which uh, may be a connection back to Genesis 6. So the Edomites, the Edomites are not going to do any better in their human rebellion did this then then the supernatural beings did in their heavenly rebellion so there might be a lot going on with this uh short sentence and short phrase just throwing it out there for consideration any thoughts nick yeah that's pretty pretty deep there um <laughs> uh, and but it, it does make sense i mean uh the way that they wrote, wrote poetry and the way that we write poetry today you know we're, we tend to emphasize like rhyming maybe not every poetry style is like that but you know we might emphasize a, an eagle at the regal beagle or something you know <laughs> but theirs was parallelism it's it's uh and so it's interesting that the eagle would be parallel to the stars and so i think that's a, a good connection there that you make um <clears throat> well nick as we move along we need to talk about why is edom being uh prophesied against what are they being judged for what is edom's sin they're guilty of <clears throat> several sins. Um, for one, and you kind of mentioned it, the pride aspect there. In fact, verse 3 says, the pride of your heart has deceived you. Um, they have done violence toward their uh, brethren, uh, Judah, uh, their blood relatives, um, going all the way back to <clears throat> Jacob and Esau. When you get to verses 11 through 14, um, you really get a list a laundry list of all <clears throat> of the wrong things the wrongdoing the sin that judah uh, that edom excuse me has perpetrated against judah um verse 11 talks about how they've been indifference toward calamity that's happening toward their brethren they've acted like a foreigner that's the language that's used um, they've rejoiced over judah's destruction in verse 12 they've looted judah's wealth they've sold judah's fugitives into slavery uh, verse 14 so they they have done a lot of bad stuff to their brethren 
And this deep-seated enmity, it can actually be traced all the way back to Jacob and Esau, where while they were still in their mama's belly, uh, they were in Rebekah and they struggled together against one another. And Genesis 25, verse 21 and following details this. In fact, Rebekah has to inquire of Yahweh about this. And God says, look, you got two nations within you. Esau is born first. Uh, Jacob comes out grasping his heel uh, after him, and their story continues with treachery and deception, one deception after another, one treacherous dealing after another, and it just it leads to this rift between the brothers that actually lasts decades and takes decades to heal. So these two nations, they grow, and following the exodus from Egypt, Israel asks Edom for safe passage through their land. Uh, and Israel promises, look, we won't touch any of your stuff. Uh, we're not going to turn to the left or the right. But Edom refused to <clears throat> let them go through. Numbers 24, verses 14 through 21 is uh, what I'm referencing here. So throughout their histories, Edom has always been ready to aid the enemies against Israel. And so here's yet another instance in which um, it leads to uh, more calamity, more violence, and it, it's what kicks off this prophecy and judgment that's uh, issued by God against Edom. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. Um, those verses, 11 through 14, I mean, it's not a pretty picture. You see the Edomites waiting their turn to loot the town while watching the other nations get their first dibs on Jerusalem's wealth. Um, they were happy about Israel's lost they heaped insult upon injury, and they set up traps even outside of town to capture their survivors as they tried to escape. They took those survivors and they enslaved them, or they sold them into slavery somewhere else. I mean, this is this is pretty nasty stuff. This is, um, you know, a humanitarian nightmare, right? Yeah. So yeah, no kidding. Um, so one of the things that will happen to Edom, verse ten. God says, "You shall be cut off forever." Alex, what does it mean to be cut off forever? Um, well, I mean, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. It could mean you're cut off forever. But uh, <laughs> here's here's what I saw when looking at it, some of the other um, manuscripts. So the Septuagint says they're cut off for the age. And uh, that could just mean a long period of time as opposed to forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Um, cut off is pretty interesting because that phrase, um, let, it, let's say it's referencing its nationhood or sovereignty as a nation, then it could be saying, okay, your lineage, the lineage of Esau, the ethnic Edomites, they're going to be completely eradicated or maybe even eventually absorbed into other people groups. But there's this other thing going on with the word cut or to cut off. Um, it's the same Hebrew word, uh, karath, in making a covenant. So when you make a covenant, uh, the Hebrew is actually, it's you cut a covenant, right. giving the imagery of taking the animals, cutting them in half, walking in between the animals, the parties of the covenant saying, you know, if I break covenant, I'm walking through these animals, and that's me saying that um, may I be cut in half like these animals if I break my covenant. So God may be um, saying that there's some sort of severe breach in contract or covenant. Uh, now, what covenant would God have with with Edom. I don't know. I don't know. But what I am saying is that God allowed the other nations to exist and to go their own ways. 
So there's some sort of extent or context to where God says, you can do your thing. I have my people, Israel, and they're under my covenant. But there are apparently still lines that Yahweh would not tolerate the other nations crossing. And if they cross those lines, then he brings judgment against them. So uh, even if other nations are not Yahweh's people in this day and time, um, even though those nations are under the law of Moses, there still, may, there still may be some sort of understanding that Yahweh has with those people, and if they break that understanding, they will get punished. So, could be a few different things going on there. What do you think, Nick? Yeah, I, I link it up with the it's kind of similar language in verse 18 um, about Edom being consumed. There'll be no survivor in the house of Esau. Um, so I'm Personally, I'm inclined here to see just the complete eradication uh, of the nation, the, the people of Edom. And um, uh, we'll, I guess, talk about that more when we get to verse 18. But, sure, uh, sure. Um, in the meantime, the day of the Lord, Alex, in verse 15, is drawing near upon all the nations. There um, it is. Yeah, how how does that happen? Uh how does that happen, Nick? How does the day of the Lord draw near for uh, 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 years? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I think it's because the day of the Lord uh, references any day of God's judgment. God has judged nations. They rise, they fall. We mentioned Job before, or God's in charge of that. When a nation falls, it's the day of the Lord. It's his mm. day of judgment against them. So when Yahweh can no longer tolerate the existence of a given nation, he brings it down. So the day of the Lord draws on all nations is what this uh, verse says, but it doesn't say that it draws on all nations at the same time, at least not in this context. Right. So for now, God determines the appointed times and boundaries of people. This is Acts chapter 17, verse 26. And he does that so that those people may seek him. So... Is there going to be a day when all the nations are judged? Uh, I think we call that the resurrection. But right. that's not the day that Obadiah has in mind right here. Obadiah has a day in mind for the Edomites and that nation. And there are going to be several more nations uh, after that that will experience a day of the Lord as well. Thoughts, Nick? So what you're saying is, is we shouldn't take every single reference to the day of the Lord in Old Testament and New Testament and shove them into the future as yet to be fulfilled. Is that right? Uh, that would be my take, yes. Rats. That, that's too bad for Tim LaHaye and, and, and those guys. John uh, Hagee and... Puts them in yeah. a pickle. One of, their, <laughs> one of their axioms they can't give up. So You, you know, a quick concordant search really does justice... Um, to the day of the Lord phrase in the Bible. Um, it's used all over. Isaiah 13, verse 6, and that's in reference to Babylon, the day of the Lord drawing near for Babylon. Jeremiah 46, verse 10, talking about the day of the Lord drawing near for Egypt. Ezekiel 30, verse 3, again, that's Egypt. Uh, Joel 1, and verse 15, this is actually in reference to God's people, Israel. Uh, and so there are there are dozens of references just like this where the day of the Lord is going to happen in time, and so he's drawing near in judgment upon 
a specific nation, or in this case, uh, all nations are going to see the execution of the judgment of God on Edom. So all these examples, um, I think, point to exactly what you're saying, Alex, that this is um, something that's going to happen uh, in time on Edom. All right, high five. Hey, high five through the radio. There you go. <laughs> or the internet, whatever we're on. Verse 16. <laughs> Segway um, talks about those who have, um, for as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they have never been. Um, what does it mean by all these nations drinking, Alex? Yeah, I'm inclined to see this as not them actually like drinking, as in putting liquid into their mouth and swallowing. What? Um, um so edom drank on god's holy mountain i think this is probably another way of talking about edom drinking up the goods the plundering that went on uh, Hmm. in jerusalem so uh you know when a when the violence of a nation fills up the cup of the wrath of god uh by the way the cup of the wrath of god is is a very stock Old Testament symbol. Right. Um, it's in Genesis. It's all through the Old Testament. Jeremiah 25 is a pretty clear instance, verses 15 through 17. This is to say that each nation, when their cup is full because of their own iniquities, they will have to drink that cup because it's going to become the cup of wrath. It'll be poured back on their own heads, and that usually finds its uh, fulfillment in the destruction and judgment of that nation. So Israel may have drank up the goods of Jerusalem, but it's going to be poured back out as violence upon their own heads. I think that's what God is saying. Yeah, yeah. That's, you're right. It's, it's a common um, figure in prophetic literature, that the cup of God's wrath. Even God's people had their own cup. Um, and uh, by the time you get to Isaiah's day, Isaiah 51, verse 17, verse 22, Jerusalem is drinking it to the dregs. And so the roots of this figure, as you mentioned, they appear way back in Genesis um, chapter 15 and verse 16, where God tells Abraham that the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And so, again, that's just the roots of what would become this figure for the cup of God's wrath. And I think that's that's exactly what's being spoken of there as well in verse 16. Uh, The next verse, verse 17... Uh, talks about, um, uh, but in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy, and the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. Um, Alex, what does it mean by the house of Jacob possessing their possessions? Um, I think that this is a a bad translation. <laughs> mm. Okay. So it makes it sound like they're going to get their stuff back right it makes it sound like okay you took my stuff but i'm gonna get my stuff back and then i'm gonna have my own stuff it's just like um i don't think that's actually what's going on here so uh the septuagint reads they shall inherit those who disinherited them Hmm. so this has the inheritance not being stuff but actual people and specifically the people who have uh pillaged them and and brought them into slavery the dead sea scrolls reads like this jacob shall possess 
those that possess them. Hmm. And so that is the more, I think, accurate reading here. The Septuagint and Dead Sea Scrolls agreeing with each other that you're going to see a reversal. Right now you see Jacob being a you know another phrase for, for Israel and the descendants of Israel. They're in slavery, but the picture is going to reverse, and they will be the sovereignty which holds rule over the other peoples. Now, Israel's captors will one day come under the nation of Israel. That's the idea here, but this could be a reference to the bringing in of all the nations into the kingdom of God. Now, everybody, I won't say everybody, but there was a strong notion that this was going to be brought about in a physical way. Uh, But you read through the Gospels, you read through the book of Acts, and you see that it's not with the uh, sword, uh, other than the sword of the Spirit, that this happens. The kingdom's not of this world. So the New Testament says the kingdom of God is comprised of those who believe in Jesus. Those people, whether Jewish or Gentile in background, are called the true Israel of God. And this is why we have this mission given by Jesus to disciple all the nations because it's the fulfilling of prophecies like this where the nations are going to come under Israel but Israel is now those who follow Jesus so the nations um, you could look back especially make sure you look at the Septuagint they were disinherited by Yahweh at Babel Israel was not a part of Babel but Deuteronomy 32 verse 8 and the Septuagint and the Dead Sea Scrolls We'll talk about God dividing those nations, disinheriting them, uh, giving them over according to the number of the angels of God or the sons of God. They were given over to other other gods. Deuteronomy 4.19 explicitly says this, that God gave them over to the sun, moon, stars, the host of heaven to worship them. So the authority of those powers, though, when Jesus says all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, that authority then of the powers over the other nations that's been transferred to jesus and so jesus says based on that authority go take the people back go bring them into my kingdom bring them under this one banner called the true israel of god so this reversal that's being prophesied here i think it's fulfilled in the church and the spreading of the church across the globe that's my thoughts nick what do you think that's a good connection um i like I like that, that it's brought forward into the the New Testament era. Well, the rest of these verses, you do kind of have to look forward and see, do, do we see this unfolding in history? And so verse 18 says that uh, there'll be no survivor for Esau. Nick, did God fulfill his word and leave no survivor for Esau? Yeah, I think I think so. Um, and this is connected back to what we talked about earlier about being cut off forever Back in verse 10, verse 16, a little similar phrasing has uh, that they shall be as though they had never been. Sure. Um, And this is all language that indicates that there will be no more Edomites ever. So, Alex, do you know any Edomites that are living today? Um, Nope. Nope. Don't know. (laughs) No? no? Yeah. I I can't think of any either. Right. I mean, and historically, what we know is that the uh, Nabataeans... They took over the territory of Edom. Uh, That was after Nabonidus put an end to their kingdom. 
Uh, and so we're looking at like um, like the the early sixth, late fifth century BC is when this stuff starts to happen. Um, and actually, um, the Edomites are driven from their territory into the southern region of Judea, and and the Edomites still linger on for uh, four centuries or so. They're still a thorn in the side of the Israelites. But then it's during the Maccabean period, um, a guy by the name of John Hyrcanus, he subdues the remnants of the Edomites, and they're actually absorbed into the Jewish nation. Um, different things happen. Um, they're kind of forced into uh, becoming proselytes. Say what you will about that, but that's what happened historically. And then the Romans, when they come in power... And when they conquer Palestine in 63 B.C., they actually put the Herods in charge. Now, the Herods are Idumeans or Edomites. Um, nevertheless, though, with the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., the Edomites, they disappear from history. And I believe that's it, take, it took a little while, but God's word was eventually fulfilled. Interesting. That makes sense? Yeah. Yeah, I had no idea that the uh, Edomians are Edomites and that those were the Herods. That's pretty interesting. Yep, true story. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, Speaking of verse 18, um, the, the first part of that verse says, The house of Jacob shall be a fire, the house of Joseph a flame. Um, Alex, why mention the house of Jacob and the house of Joseph? Uh, There might be something going on here in reference to the entirety of Israel's descendants. So the house of Jacob is pretty common for denoting the northern kingdom, north Israel. Uh, Mm. You know, after the days of Solomon, uh, the two kings, Jeroboam and Rehoboam, split the kingdom. That north kingdom... Ten tribes of Israel eventually uh, sacked by Assyria in 722 BC. The southern kingdom, Judah, eventually sacked by Babylon in 586 BC. And so even after the return from exile from Babylon, there was still this notion that um, Israel is not back yet, not fully, because we still have all these scattered people from the from the northern kingdom. Um, so the house of Joseph was a pretty common way of denoting that southern kingdom. So House of Jacob, 10 northern tribes, House of Joseph, two southern tribes. You got the totality of the 12 tribes. And so you have this idea that all of the tribes are going to uh, come about in some sort of way. There's going to be some sort of return. And uh, upon that return, they'll consume or absorb the house of Esau. Now, um, this may find its fulfillment in the return of all the tribes that have been scattered uh, back into the church. If you remember, in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, it said there were Jews there from every nation under heaven. And so you had this scattering of Jews present at Pentecost, listening to the gospel and thousands being converted and thousands following that. Um, that may be a pretty good fulfillment of these returning of the 12 tribes. Um, that's why it's okay to call the church the true Israel, because the church doesn't replace Israel. The church, the Israel became the church. So the following, um, you know, spreading of the gospel to all the nations, the Gentile nations, um, 
that begins to encompass everybody else, not just the scattered tribes, not just the uh, Jews. So here's the deal. This train of thought that I'm on, it was the exact train of thought that the uh, that James takes, the brother of the Lord, in Acts chapter 15. So in 15, if you remember, they're debating about um, the Gentiles being converted and, and what should they do? Do they have to look like the Jews? Do they have to keep the law of Moses? And they write that letter in Acts chapter 15. And part of James's response in his speech is he quotes Amos chapter 9, verses 11 through 12. And the interesting about this is um, he talks about the, the fallen booth of David being rebuilt. But in Amos, it follows that by saying uh, something to the extent that um, Edom will be consumed. Um, but when James quotes that verse, he says that the Gentiles will come, you know, and so he replaces Edom with the Gentiles and then applies it to Gentiles being converted into the church. So I don't know if that makes sense. It's kind of a, a train of thoughts that connect one to the other. But basically what I'm saying is all of this finds its fulfillment in the church. Uh, in other words, Esau becomes representative of the Gentiles, which become the uh, all the peoples, all the nations that are being discipled and being brought into the kingdom of God, which is the church. So this, um, I think this, this verse here, verse 18, and the rest of the verses, they're pointing to this unfolding of the return of the true Israel of God and then the absorption of the Gentiles into that kingdom that we see in the book of Acts. Uh, Nick, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I, um, those are good connections, and uh, I guess I, I approached it more um, from a historical standpoint and especially focusing on um, the house of Jacob, the house of Joseph being this flaming fire and the house of Esau being the stubble and that they shall burn them and consume them. And historically, I think that's exactly what happened. Uh, I've already mentioned uh, a bit of this. The Maccabean leadership um, came and they essentially forced um, Edom to integrate into the Jewish state as it was constituted in the second century BC. And then the uh, returned exiles, they did. They assimilated what remained of the Edomites um, at that time, thereby consuming them, as it were, uh, just like fire consumes stubble. So, uh, Here, I found um, Amos is actually just one page behind Obadiah, so I forgot that. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I turned one page behind, and the verse I was thinking of, uh, verse 11 says, "...in that day I'll raise up the fallen booth of David." wall up its breaches, raise up its ruins, rebuild it as in the days of old. Well, James quotes that in Acts 15, 17, and says this is this is the church. And then in verse 12 of Amos 9, it says that they may possess the remnant of Edom. So there is some sort of remnant of Edom that um, the rebuilt booth of David is supposed to possess. And so James takes that and he, he applies it to the church, absorbing all the Gentiles in the book of Acts. So, uh, I guess moving forward and maybe carrying on that theme a little bit into verses 19 and 20, a lot of different places talking about possessing a lot of other places. Um, 
Alex, why why is it that certain places are listed here becoming a possession of other places? Yeah, this is a little confusing. You read through it, it's hard to pronounce some of the places. Uh, where are these places? Why is it saying that they're going to get this place and then that place? And It's confusing. Here's how I see it. It starts out with the Negev people possessing Esau. So that's in verse 19. Those of the Negev will possess the mountains of Esau. And then it goes through this list and it ends, the list ends with verse 20 saying, the uh, exiles of the sons of Israel who are among the Canaanites, the exiles of Jerusalem who are in uh, Sepharad, they will possess the cities of the Negev. So if you have the Negev possessing Esau and all that follows that, and then the exiles possessing the Negev, it's kind of like the uh, snake eating its tail. You just run full circle, and mm. you can see this playing out in history. I mean, there's the dis- dispersing and disappearing of Edom, um, followed by the bringing in of the scattered Jewish tribes along with the Gentiles into the church. And so I think that's what this is really talking about. So, short answer. Makes sense, yeah. (laughs) Short and Um, sweet. Yeah. Uh, So then uh, let's talk about verse 21 here, um, just a bit about the, uh, I I think your New American Standard says deliverers. Um, My English Standard says saviors. Uh, shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau. Um, Alex, who are the deliverers, and how will how will they judge the mountain of Esau? Uh, that's a good question. You have to, I think, bring a little bit of this into um, understanding their language. And when they talk about mountains, um, Esau didn't have one specific mountain that was theirs. Uh, Mount Zion, of course, brings to the mind the image of the location of the temple and the, the presence of God but mountains are stock symbolic language to talk about kingdoms and when you get to the New Testament you have the kingdom of God the kingdom of light uh, versus the kingdom of darkness and so whenever you pit these two mountains against each other you're you're really stepping back and talking about the uh, grand cosmic warfare of, of good versus evil and we already saw that James in Acts 15 takes Esau or Edom and turns it into all the Gentiles and it's the bringing in of those Gentiles that adds them or absorbs them into the kingdom of God when they come into the church so with that in the background deliverers here uh, that's what mine says uh, it can be translated as messiahs That's what you have in the original language. The Septuagint replaces deliverers, though, with those being delivered or those being rescued. So which is it? Is it the deliverers or is it the delivered? So if this is an allusion to the church, which Mount Zion is used as an image for the church in the book of Hebrews chapter 12, if it is an allusion to the church, which is the body of Christ and Christ is the Messiah, Um, That church is said to have now ascended to spiritual Zion, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 29. So the Christian has become both the rescued, the delivered, because Christ saved us, the Messiah saved us. But then as the delivered, we become a part of his body 
which are his hands and feet on the earth, right? We are the representatives of the rescuer. So we become like little deliverers, little messiahs, when we bring the gospel to the world. We represent the one messiah whom we are a part of as his body. So this could be a very uh, prophetic and beautiful picture of the church. So the mountain of Esau then in this context would then represent all other people. And all those other people, uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 19 says, they're receiving a warning from Mount Zion. The warning is repent or face judgment. Paul talks about this in Acts 17 in his sermon on Mars Hill or the Areopagus. Verses 30 through 31 specifically says God has overlooked the times of ignorance in the past, but now he commands that all people everywhere repent because he's appointed a, a time in which he's going to judge the whole world through this one man, Christ Jesus, whom he's raised from the dead. So the gospel brings all people into God's kingdom, but the rest who do not uh, accept or listen to the gospel, who receive that warning, but they don't heed the warning, they're going to be like that mountain. And this mountain becomes a part of the things that can be shaken away. Hebrews chapter 12 again. And so the Lord will shake the mountain of Esau away out of existence. And the mountain that will stand forever is the mountain of God, his kingdom with his church, his people, and all who have come to him for salvation. So that's, uh, I, I, there's some deep stuff in here. I hope I'm <laughs> getting some of it across. I hope people are hearing what I'm spitting. No, I, I think so. And I'll just, uh, again, emphasize uh, the historical aspect of this, that that after the exile and then with the coming of the Maccabean leadership, um, again, this is fulfilled. The, the deliverers, if we want to look at the Maccabees that way, um, they they would come and they would uh, govern, rule, judge. Uh, they'd administer justice over the Edomites. That's uh, again exactly what happened. And then that the kingdom shall be uh, Yahweh's. Um, though I mean it, it does point to something even greater, just as as you were talking about. Um, real quick, I just want to. Um, what are we walking away with here uh, in terms of Obadiah and his message for today? What are we carrying across the bridge of time for today, um, Alex? I think for me, it's the uh, remembering that all earthly kingdoms are temporary. Every nation uh, that rises will eventually fall, but the one kingdom that stays forever is the uh, kingdom of God. If you're a believer in Christ Jesus, you're in that kingdom, and you've pledged your loyalty to be uh, loyal first and foremost to that kingdom, to no other kingdom. So this is a good, uh, healthy dose of reality and gut check for the disciple when it comes to nationalism, when it comes to um, how we view other nations, and we need to remember that importance the uh, number one goal is to spread the gospel so that people will come to this immovable, unshakable mountain that will last forever because all the other mountains, all the other kingdoms, all the other nations, they're going out of business. They all reach their peak and then they fall. That's what I'm taking away. Yeah. And, and I guess, uh, mine is, uh, adjacent to that. Um, in the NIV, 
verse 1 uh, starts off with, thus says the sovereign Lord. Uh, Lord, all caps, is his name, Yahweh. So Yahweh is sovereign. And, um, you know, we may look around today, and one of the sins of Edom was pride. And, um, you know, we, we look around today, I think there's a lot of, a lot of pride and a lot of arrogance um, in people today. I think we see the same kind of uh, uh, people taking advantage of others, doing violence to one another. Um, and we may wonder, you know, when's it going to end, right? Um, when when is, is God going to right all wrongs? And, and we mentioned it just kind of in passing earlier in the show. There is coming this final day of the Lord when the sovereign Lord is going to show up and he's going to he's going to put to end uh, <clears throat> all of the all of the the plans and purposes of man he's going to right all of the wrongs and uh, regardless of what it looks like on the on the on uh, on the appearance of things today God is still in control, and and He will ultimately be the one who puts all the wrongs to right um, at the end. So, powerful message from Obadiah, uh, still applicable for today. Gives you a lot of hope. Reminds you of the hope of the resurrection. Looking forward to that day. And I think that's going to do it for us on this episode. We thank you for listening and hope that you will go on to iTunes and Google Play. Uh, just search Swordplay, subscribe to the podcast, leave a review because that's going to help us get the word out about it. Yes, and if you have any questions, email us at swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. We'll read your question on the air, answer it accordingly. Feel free to repost uh, links or descriptions to any of your social media, Facebook, Twitter, um, Instagram, and help us to spread the word if this has been helpful to you. Well, thanks for listening to another episode of Swordplay. Swordplay.